Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 215 of the Speaking Club podcast. Here are some sage words of advice from one of my favourite business books, Play Bigger by Al Ramadan, Christopher Lockhead, Dave Peterson and Kevin Maney. Always remember, different versus better. When you seek better, you are moving into someone else's territory always fighting for attention and having to prove that you're better. When two people say, I'm the best, one of them is lying. When you seek different, you aren't climbing someone else's ladder. You're building your own ladder and putting yourself at the top run. It's not an easier path, but ultimately it puts you in a more advantageous position than if you constantly fight for better. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. If you listen regularly and you're wondering, well, the dog is sleeping better, which means so am I. I'm pretty much uh, over my zombie Uh, period which was happening for a number of weeks and the plays that I was in last week that I was telling you about in the last episode they went very well took a lot of practice on the day to nail those lines perfectly but fortunately we pulled it out of the bag in the evening so now I can focus on getting ready for the premiere of my own new play at the Brighton Fringe Festival. And if you're a UK listener and you're a fan of theatre and comedy, then Crunch might be right up your street. And you can find out more about it over at the Brighton Fringe website. Okay, but enough of that. We want to talk about today's show. Now, if you know my backstory, you'll know that alongside my comedy and performance work, I also worked in the corporate world for many years, reaching the level of HR director before I quit for good in 2017. And I remember often waking up at 4am to do work, uh, leaving the office late and missing out on spending time with my family. So when I heard the story of my guest today, many elements resonated and they may well do the same for you. Because Jackie Brennan spent over 30 years building a career in the construction industry. She was dedicated, career focused and ambitious and she worked her way up to become a senior leader. But after returning from an overseas contract, she decided to take a rare short break before the next one. And in that break, something happened that turned her view of her life upside down. And despite having every intention to return, after her revelation, she found that she just couldn't bring herself to do it. And that short pause turned into a permanent break from her corporate job. It also forged a new purpose for her 
and a complete change in direction. And today, Jackie uses her experience and her skills in complementary therapies to share a new perspective on mental well-being. Through her speaking and her coaching, she challenges conventional thinking and sets out a different approach for individuals and organizations, one that will enable them to avoid the traps of burnout and poor mental health and secure all the benefits of sustainable high performance. And those are a few of the things that she's going to talk about with us today. So without further ado, let's switch to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Jackie Brennan. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And I know you've got a really important message to get out to people. So I'm looking forward to hearing you sharing that and hopefully making a difference to some people. Now, one of the big things that you talk about is burnout. And I guess the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, as I understand it, it wasn't until you left your last corporate job that you realized you were suffering from burnout. Can you share how you found that out? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is very strange that you, know, you have to leave something before you realize what is, was happening to you. Um, so I've been three years working in Canada on a, on a contract and that contract came to an end. I came back to the UK and that was around it was at the end of November, so I thought to myself, oh, well, Christmas coming, no, I'll sit back, get Christmas out of the way, because I have been living outside the UK, so coming back, having to get the house ready and off Christmas anyway. I came, came back, thought, I'll get Christmas out of the way, then I'll start looking to see what I want to do next. Well, Christmas came and went, and I thought, I don't want to go back into construction the way I was. And... I thought, well, I could always be an auditor because I had certified in ISO qualifications. And then I thought, well, I don't really want to do that either. And it took me, time went on, and what I said, well, I'll give myself three months. Three months turned into six, turned into 12. And I just couldn't get myself motivated to do anything re regarding that part of my life, that work that, in the construction industry. And it was only the middle of last year I was reading, I was looking at um, well-being and mental health. And I read this article and it asked, no, I'm like, are you optimistic, disciplined, flexible? And I was going, yes, yes, that's me. No, motivated, keen to learn, helpful and <laughs> organized. And, and just it was going through and I was going, yes, 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 that's me. And, <laughs> and I thought, I read then, no, well, these are some of the characteristics of a high achiever. Oh, I thought, oh, I felt quite smug at that point. I thought, oh, oh, that's good to know. And then I read on, and I wasn't so smug at the end of this one, because then it was asking things like, well, you know, do you suffer from perfectionism? I thought, yes. Self-doubt, yeah. Some fear of failure, definitely. And then the big one, do you sacrifice time with family and friends? Do you not go out, no, not socialize with colleagues? And do you ignore your own personal needs in order to get the job done? And I thought, yes, that is definitely me. Well, seemingly those are the signs of stress and burnout. And it was mm -hmm. reading it there and seeing it in black and white 
that it really hit home and it hit hard. And it was only then that I looked back at my life. With that in my mind, I looked back at my life and I could see the impact that that had had and the personal cost, life and health. So looking, when you looked back at your life and your career, what did a sort of an average day look like? And what do you think led you to that point? You know, what was the source of all of that? Um, Okay, let's, if I flip it around, maybe. So we have to go back (laughs) quite a bit. So growing up, I was um, the second, I was one of six children, the second oldest of, of six children. But unfortunately and sadly, four of my siblings died at a very early age. So it was only my brother and I that survived past the age of 15. Mm. And the way that our family dealt with it, I don't know how other families would deal with such a loss, but our family, we dealt with it by just not talking about it. Just don't mention their names. Nothing was said. We just carried carried on. And it was when my sister died uh, when I was 12, she was 13. It was then that I unconsciously decided I had to be the perfect child. Now, before, before her death, I was very happy, chatty, outgoing. But afterwards, I became that sort of quiet, uh, kept myself to myself. Um, I always did what I was told. I never spoke back. And I never showed, I rarely showed any emotion and certainly wasn't telling people how I felt. And I got very good at it because I spent over 30 years suppressing those emotions and seeking perfectionism everywhere and at that cost of my my life and my my health and I'd say in amongst all that there was probably some survivor guilt after all like why had I lived when they had died there had to be a purpose and at that time my inner voice was telling me that my purpose was to be perfect and the thing is we all have that inner voice. And if anybody's sitting there going, oh, what inner voice? It's that one. <laughs> and, and so my past continued to drive my life. But even though I wasn't aware of it, and it certainly had an influence, a major influence on my performance at work, again, but I wasn't aware of it. So it's interesting. So I want to talk about what that influence was. But how did you discover this stuff from your childhood because so often we have these blind spots in in our lives that we we don't know we've got this baggage how did you find out about that because I mean it just it was just events that you went through yeah so how did you discover that yeah so yeah events I went through because when no I know I knew I certainly knew it happened but it was just nearly and I and it's ridiculous to say everyday life but for us it really was because there had been so many of those of, of the brothers and sisters dying. But I only discovered that, oh, and it was probably back in, well, I finished 2019 that I was doing a few courses around NLP and some neuro-linguistic programming. And we were doing some timeline work. So going back into your past, going to the future and doing that. And I all I could see 
were black spots. There was nothing there. Um, they say that the um, unconscious mind, the subconscious mind will black out things that you're not ready to, until you're ready to deal with them. And I thought, well, flip me, I mustn't be ready to deal with anything because it was just black. Everybody was seeing these wonderful things and I was seeing blackness. And the woman who was uh, running the course uh, told her a bit about my, my background. And she said, you're, you haven't dealt with the grief. And it's quite true, I haven't dealt with the grief. I, we, we just didn't, we just moved on. And, and this might sound a bit weird on this one, but she told me to do a, a bit of a, a ceremony or a ritual and grieve for them, which is exactly what I did one, one evening <laughs> sitting here on my own. And I, because I, she said to, you know, picture them, um, recall a memory. And I thought, well, I can't because I haven't got a memory of them. So all I did was imagine myself back in the place where they were. And uh, so like my sister would have been our bedroom and I just imagined her back there. And it was the weirdest thing because I, I had a talk with her then and I called them all back one by one. I grieved with them, we talked. And I know it sounds weird, but that brought such a release to me to, to get that lifted. And that is when I realized that that had been holding me back and that I was able to move on. Oh my now, goodness, it sounds it, so powerful. It was, it was honestly, and it's given me goosebumps even thinking about it now, but that was a very powerful release for me, that letting go of that, dealing with it. And I only was able to do that with because of the tools that I had learned. And that's part of it. And it's not exactly that specific tool, but it's, it's using those tools that I know can help people get over things from the past, but also just in everyday life. And did you ever talk to your mum and dad about this? No, no. because that was their way of dealing with it. So I... I didn't have a chance with my dad. My dad uh, died when he was 60, so quite a few years ago. And we haven't talked about it, never mentioned it. And actually, no, I tell, I tell a lie, sorry. There was one instance when my mum was over uh, staying with me and something was mentioned, and this was before this 2019 when I, I dealt with it, it was before that. And something, we were talking about something and... I just was in floods of tears, automatic tears. It wasn't a case of, oh, that's sad, no cry. It was just unconscious tears started flowing. And it was because of something we'd been talking about or it triggered something in my mind. And at that point, my mum had said to me, yeah, we always we did wonder if it, if it had affected you. And I thought, oh, yes, it seems it has. <laughs> <laughs> so let's now talk about, so you Again, looking back and with the hindsight that you now have mm. around that stuff and survivor guilt and everything else, how did all of that play out in your career and work life and, and as and home life, you know, around work? Well, when I think about it now, it was nearly a perfect storm if you look at it that so I entered the construction industry. I've been in construction for, or I worked in construction for 39 years. And it was a great place for me, for someone who doesn't want to show emotion. Well, no, it's a male dominated industry. Excellent, don't have to do that. We moved around 
or in construction moved around quite a bit. So I continually, every year near enough, I was moving home. And so I lost touch with a lot of friends. I didn't have time to make friends outside of work because you were always moving, didn't keep in touch. So that coupled with the construction industry, you know, working at top speed, meeting tight deadlines, everything was needed yesterday. It just, it, it really did suit me and, and my perfection skills. And I think also working in the construction industry and being a, um, a female in the male dominated industry, I was always feeling I had to be better. I know I had to be work harder, do more than just to be seen as average almost. So always working at top speed. And there's, there's that um, say, you know, that stop and smell the coffee. Uh -uh. Didn't have time for that. I couldn't even have time to smell the coffee, never mind stop, because I was always running to get to wherever I needed to go. So a typical day, probably for the last eight years in my construction industry was start or get up at five to be on the road to miss the, the, the rush hour traffic sitting at the, my, my desk, living on coffee most of the time, missing lunches, working later in the evening, um, trying and telling myself that it was because I didn't want to, you know, be stuck in the, the evening traffic. I would typically get home at probably eight o'clock being the earliest I'd get home. And at that point, the very thought of cooking for myself was just no. So I lived on either toast or crisps, and as it was evening, after all, a glass or two of wine. And that is how I went on. I was working minimum of 70 hours a week. I mean a minimum, because typically I would work later than that, well, seven o'clock at night, eight, nine. I mean, I have left the office at 11 o'clock at night before. And weekend work. So that was just normal for me. And does it shock you now oh. to hear that? Yes, it does. Looking back now, it I, I wonder how I survived, to be honest. Mm. There was always a part of me, uh, and I, I can even hear myself now saying it to myself, well, I can't control everything. Something has to give, and that was always me. My How I looked, how I felt, my health. No, as long as I could get everything else done and be as perfect as I could. I could get it. And, and I've said this in a few posts I've put out on LinkedIn. No, I apologize to all those people <laughs> where my perfectionism and my that nitpicking that I would have done uh, might have impacted them. The other thing is that I might not have been aware of it myself, but I could see it in other people. You no, know, and I was always was saying to others, no, oh, don't come in at this time, come in later, or, oh, you need to do that, we'll go and get that done, Look, go and look after yourself. But it's really only now that I'm realising that I was saying one thing, but I was displaying the actions were something else completely. And I, I heard a quote, you know, somebody said something, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, you know, that you're, oh, let me get it sort of right, your actions are speaking so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Mm. And I thought, oh, that was me. Yeah, because yeah. you were role modeling all I'm, the behaviors well, that you were telling other people not to today. do. Yeah. And this is and there's an interesting question that I wanted to ask you. So you had a specific set of circumstances in your childhood mm -hmm. that contributed to the way that you worked, the way that you behaved, you know, lived your life. Yet 
there were other people in the organization doing exactly the same thing. Possibly some were role modeling you, but there must have been others that were as driven as you. Do you think excluding the, your special set of circumstances with your siblings, do you think there are, this is a, almost like an epidemic amongst uh, people in work today? You know, do you have to have that baggage, if you like, to behave like this? Or is, are there other factors at play? There, no, you don't need to have the, the same baggage as me. And having said that, I think we all bring some baggage. I mean, because you bring yourself to work. <laughs> and whatever's happening in your life, it comes into work with you. Because I know I'm not, I know I'm not alone. If you look at some of the reports from Microsoft that have come out, like the Great Resignation Report, saying that 54% of the workforce feel overworked, 37% are exhausted. And to me, those people that are driven for whatever reasons that they have. Uh, are, and high achievers, people that, that want to get on, they're typically not your people that come in at nine and go home at five. They are the ones that will be sitting at their desk, like I was, working longer, working harder, ignoring other things. And I think it is easy, once you know that, it is quite easy to spot those people and to be able to do something to, to help them, yeah. And in terms of the impact, so you... Obviously, you got to that point where you like you couldn't actually face mm. going back in and changed your career effectively. Yeah. Is that typical in terms of you know, when people get to the point where burnout actually hit? I mean, you discovered that you were burnt out, but I mean, in a sense, it was quite a gentle discovery because you were out of the environment. But that's not always the case no. for other people, is it? No, and I, I liken it to um, a pressure cooker. So, you know, if you think of a pressure cooker, it works because it's all, you've, you've got a certain amount of pressure there. And that's just like us in everyday life. But if you don't know how to release that pressure, if the pressure keeps building, you don't know how to release it, um, you aren't able to, or you might not even notice, like me, that the, that pressure was increasing. Eventually, the whole thing just blows up. And that is the point where somebody goes off with stress or burnout or goes to the competitor, leaves the industry like I did, or checks out of life altogether. Is there evidence that that is on the increase? It certainly is. In the, in the construction industry, more construction workers now die from suicide than falls from height. Gosh. Globally, and this, this stat is, is shocks me, that globally one construction worker at least minimum of one construction worker a day dies from suicide oh in the uk goodness. if you think in the uk males in the men in the uk are three times more likely to die by suicide and in construction men are three times more likely to die by suicide than the na national average so that's what nine times more likely to die by suicide it, it it's it is absolutely shocking. The thing about it is that there is stigma there, and it's called it in construction, it's called the silent crisis, because it is a male-dominated industry, and women make up probably around between 10 and 15% now in the construction industry, probably in the UK. It's such a male-dominated industry, and one of the things, and I'm, I know I'm generalising here, but it, it seems to be 
working out true within the construction industry. Men don't talk. They're not going to open up to people about how they're, they're feeling that's seen as soft. And it, it again, it, it's coming into that perfect storm. Mm. But it's not just, I mean, that sounds horrific in that particular industry, but it's not just in that industry, is it? Mm. Burnout's happening. Burnout's happening everywhere. I mean, it's that, and I think some, I, I read another stat um, recently about the, the changing in work patterns. You know that way back before the industrial revolution, no, it was seven days a week people working. Industrial revolution came along and they changed it down to a, a six day week. So they got a, a, a day off. And the hours then were basically the hours that I worked in construction. I thought, I'm, I'm working the same. And that would be typical, I would say, of a lot of, of industries. There, there's almost that badge of honour, you know, I work long hours and high production is needed. And it is seen to be, well, we have to work long hours to get that. But we don't. And there's plenty of evidence to show that. In fact, Microsoft went down to, did an experiment, went down to a four-day week. Production went up 40%. Wow. And there's um, Andrew Barnes, who's the founder of a place called, or a company called Perpetual Guardian, uh, which is a um, planning service uh, company in New Zealand. And back in 2018, he decided to experiment with a four-day work week to see how it would go, because he could see benefit both employees and the company and his the work-life balance scores of his company went up 30 percent and they're still doing that today in fact they are rolling out trials and helping companies in the uk roll out trials of four-day week and mm -hmm. i'm not advocating that everybody has to go to a four-day week or reduce their hours but there are options out there that people need to look at and do you think, there's two things that I want to ask you. I guess we're talking about people in employment. Yeah. Uh, this a lot. You're now self-employed. Yes. Do you think that there is the same issue for people running small businesses, micro businesses, entrepreneurs, that they could be on that same treadmill? Oh, definitely. Definitely, because whether it's it's a worse situation or not, because if you're there on your own, you're the only person doing the work. So if you don't work, you don't get paid. Or if you don't put in all the background stuff to do it, it you're not going to succeed. So the tie-in actually between that um, small business and that, if you look at even in the construction industry, a high majority of them are self-employed. So there's definitely a, a link there. And I think that the tools, techniques, the information and the knowledge that I gain certainly has helped me now because now I can recognize when I'm starting to feel stressed and I can do something about it. So like over the weekend there, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was doing um, a full three, three full day courses or a course over those full three days. So yesterday, I would typically, I was getting up and thinking, no, I'm not going to do any, anything today. I need some time off. So I took it, which would have been unheard of before. No, Jackie, you can't do that. Get your nose to that grindstone and carry on. But I've recognized now what's needed. And I think 
the more we learn about how the mind works, because it is, I mean, I say it's the most complex piece of kit in the known universe. And unless we know and understand how it works, why we do the things we do, unless we understand that, we're not going to be able to control it. And we're not going to be able to get the best from ourselves. And I think that's what we need to be sharing with people, especially out there in, in industry and around mental health. Give people the, the information, the knowledge, but knowledge on its own. is They say knowledge is, and I, my Northern Ireland accent might come out here, knowledge is power, power. But really, knowledge is potential power because you have to do something with it. And so you oh, need nice. to give people the tools and techniques that go with, here's the knowledge, here's the tools and techniques, put them together. And it helps people feel, support their own well-being, their own mental health, but also makes them feel in control. So I now feel in control of my life rather than, you know, my life controlling me. Mm, excellent. And, and what impact do you think that the pandemic has had on this issue? Um, and I mean, and there's some other big events going on. Do you think this that potentially amplifies the problem or crystallizes the problem or actually gets people to the point where the pressure cooker has burst in some cases? I think that it has opened a lot of people's eyes to what is possible. So if you think about it, like before the pandemic, how many companies would have thought, oh, we'll be able to work remotely? None. If you weren't sitting at your desk and the boss had eyes on you, you weren't working. Whereas now, well, no, that's nearly, that is everyday life and that has been for, for nearly two years. So we, we certainly can change, but I think it also comes out in, again, various reports that have been out. And Microsoft have done a lot of work around this. They did a report on the next great disruption is hybrid, hybrid work and are we ready? And some of the key trends in there were about how the world of work is changing. And some of those stats, a few of them are flexible work is here to stay. It said that leaders are out of touch with employees and need a wake up call. Interesting. But also <laughs> that high productivity is masking an exhausted workforce. And that comes back to that, you know, those working long hours being that badge of honour. But that... It's not a high-performance strategy. And any company that thinks that, they, they are pushing their people towards that burnout. And I think one of the things that, when I look at it, it's not a case of, you know, is it people first or is it profit first? It has to be a two-pronged approach. They have to work together. You know, that the, the company has to provide uh, a caring, and I call it a caring culture, but they have to provide the, the right environment for people to thrive, to reach, be able to reach their potential. And on the employee side, having the information and tools and techniques that they can then feel in control and bring their best self to work and you know, do the, the best that they can to reach their potential. It, it's, it is a two-pronged approach. And, I think that's the way we we need to be looking at it. 
And and I guess, you know, a lot of organizers, you know, there's been a lot of um, focus on mental health increasingly yeah. since the pandemic. It's, it's come, I think, into sharp focus or more focus, perhaps. I know you have a, a view about this, that organizations are making mistakes in tackling mental health or mental well-being. What do you think that they're getting wrong? I'm sort of loath to say that maybe they're wrong. I think they've, they've taken the first step by raising the awareness. So they look at, to me, looking from the outside in again, there's, there's a lot of talk. There's raising awareness, which is great, and raising the profile. But to me, that is just the first step. And there is a saying, and this may just be, again, a Northern Ireland saying, but to me, it's all fur coat and no knickers. There's, there's nothing tangible there. There's no substance. There's no, no foundation underneath it. We need to be more proactive and preventative because it's a very, I see it as a very reactive approach that we're waiting for a crisis to happen before we do anything about it. So there's a crisis go and deal with that one crisis goes against another crisis go and deal with that and i think back to my time in health and safety uh, in the construction industry if we had tackled health and safety the same way that we're tackling mental health today we would just be waiting for an accident to happen go and deal with that one accident deal with another oh wait for another one deal with that and well people are dying at the moment with the mental health crisis, but with being the courts, no, the HSE would be all over us. And it is a very reactive approach. We need to be more proactive, more preventive, more preventative action, and do more than talk. Because as I said, raising awareness is, is, is great, but it doesn't automatically mean you do anything about it. So I say, no, we're all aware that fast food's bad for us, but how many of us still go out and eat it on quite a regular basis? We need to do more. We need to take action. Because as I've said, while we're, while we're talking about it, those stats continue to rise. And, and I know that you, you're on a mission to, to switch this, to flip it from being reactive to proactive. That's your sort of main driver. What are the obstacles that you're coming up against when you're sharing your message? There's a few of them. I think one of the main ones is stigma. The stigma attached to mental health, because when you, when you, certainly when I was growing up, if you say, ask, you know, what comes to mind when you think, hear the word mental? And if most people, if you're honest about it, it's probably not a very positive image. You know, certainly for me, it was, oh, the person's dangerous, they're mad, or, you know, at least a bit weird, there's something there. And I think that is one of the main things we need to get, to get over. Because I see it all about, reframing so as i've said i'm from northern ireland as my accent gives me away and <laughs> so back in 2019 i was going back home to see my family i'd asked a friend to come with me she'd never been to northern ireland so i said why don't you you come along and i'll visit my family and we can go and see some of the sites things like the county antrim coast road and it is known it's just not me saying it it is known as one of the most beautiful drives in the world and there's the Giants Causeway that mo most people will have heard of, Calgary Grove Bridge, so various local landscapes. So off we, off we went, got there, went on our trip. So, But <laughs> I was absolutely in shock for most of the, the trip because 
those places that I'd grown up with that were just nice places to go and see were now packed with people. I mean, hordes of people. And I thought, what, what, what's going on? It's, it's unheard of. Now. As I said, don't get me wrong, it was great to see people back in Northern Ireland because if you think back, when I was growing up, it was the time of the Troubles. And tourists didn't come to Northern Ireland. Who wanted to go somewhere where there were people were being killed and being blown up? Thankfully, that has been changing over the years. But it was unheard of. And I, thought, I looked around and I thought, what, what's going on here? Trying to take a picture in the Giants Causeway with no one else on it. Not a chance. Cross the Caracory Rope Bridge and you're on. Uh -uh. No, no way. Huge queues. <laughs> I must have been living in a cave for quite some time. Or, no, if we think about it, actually, I was at my desk working all those years. <laughs> because what I, did, what I didn't realise that all those places I'd taken my friend to see that were just, as I say, nice places to go and visit when I was growing up, turned out to be the set locations for Game of Thrones. <laughs> I had inadvertently taken her on the... Game of Thrones visitors tour and by the way I saved her 600 pounds in doing so <laughs> that's why all those people were there hordes of people because of the Game of Thrones and I also should have realized because my brother had told me that a few years back this huge green screen had appeared uh, in a quarry in Macromorn which is near where he lives and that was the main film set for it but gone so I see it that if we in the business world don't take responsibility for reframing mental health, it's going to be like Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Everybody knows about it. There's a lot of talk, but no one's going there and nothing changes because now Northern Ireland has the stigma of the Troubles. You can still go and see the murals on the wall and that, but when people think of Northern Ireland now, it isn't the Troubles that comes to mind. It's the Game of Thrones. That more positive impact of Game of Thrones has really changed the image of Northern Ireland. And that's what I think we need to be doing with mental health because we all have mental health. It's no different from physical health. It's just that it's a, a sliding scale, as I see it. So like physical health, you have elite athletes at one end and someone just struggling with everyday movement at the other. With mental health, exactly the same. You could have someone who'd be considered um, excellent mental health, like the, the Dalai Lama, and down to poor mental health that may, you know, someone, if you think of some of the uh, movie stars, like Robin Williams, you know, suffered from depression, committed suicide. And that, to me, we have that sliding scale. And we can be at any point there along that, but we need to... We need to be looking at that well-being because it is our overall well-being that affects our mental health. And that's where I want to reframe it and put the focus. I love I love that that story. So stigma and sort of reframing that. What what are some of the obstacle other obstacles that you you know you're coming up against when you're sharing this message? The other ones are that companies think it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and they're not going to get a return on investment. And there's now plenty of proof out there that you do get a return investment. And it's usually around that five to one balance. But to me, it's the cost of not doing something mm. to proactively address mental health far outweighs the cost of doing it. Because 
when you look at it, what happens if you don't? You know, you you lose your best people, you lose productivity, you lose the um, work winning uh, and your reputation. Um, overall, what's the cost of that? Absolutely. And I guess looking at this from both sides as an organisation, as an individual, what are some of the first steps that you'd recommend them to take to start tackling this issue? I see it as a nearly a three, there's three steps that I think um, organisations need to take. One, the first one is getting the culture right. And if you look at the ISO 45003, which is managing the psychological risk factor uh, in the workplace, that gives clear guidelines, things that companies can do to get start to get that culture right. And there's other companies out there. There's a mindful business charter that um, a few companies have put together that address getting that work-life balance right and getting the right culture. So things like looking at, you know, Emails, no, not sending emails at, at 10 o'clock at, at night and expecting a reply, respecting people's vacation time, holiday time, rest time. And just putting that, something like that, a charter together that you live by almost. No, again, it's back down to do the actions. Your actions and your words are, are one and the same. So getting the culture right so that people feel safe in, one, it's speaking up, but you're creating that, um, it's a bit like putting seeds in fertile ground or you're chucking them on rocks. Where do you expect people to grow best? You need to create that right environment for them. So to me, the first step is creating the culture. And then it's moved, going to the, and back to empowering your people, giving them the, the knowledge of how the mind works. And it's not, I'm not saying that people have to be neuroscientists to understand it, but it's it's just simple, easy to understand models that people will then understand why they're doing some of the, the things you, you do. It's I call it the instruction manual, you know, that thing that we usually throw away because after all, we know how this goes together. And then you're left with looking at all these screws and bolts and thinking, oh, I wonder where those went as the wonky, whatever you'd made is, is sitting there. So it's in it's about empowering your people, give them the knowledge. And then, of course, once you have the knowledge, you need the tools and techniques that go with that. And again, those are just simple things that easy to do actions that people can, can put in place to either prevent or at least reduce the impact that whatever's happening to them. So I had a I look back at one of the instances that I had uh, in my last job. I was at a meeting co-chairing a meeting with one of the other directors and some of our I think it was the senior health and safety staff were there so we were going through the various actions but it soon became very clear that this other director was getting very angry and his voice was getting louder but he was directing his anger at me I sat there and thought hmm, what's going on here and looking around I could see that the others were feeling a bit uncomfortable so as calmly as I could I said it was probably a good time to end the meeting and everybody left and I asked him, I, I certainly wasn't condoning his behaviour, and I asked him what, what, the heck, what the heck happened there and why had he got angry? He said that at some point I'd crossed my arms and he had taken that to mean that I uh, was disagree, absolutely disagreeing with everything that he was saying. 
where the reality was I was sitting under the air conditioner and I was absolutely freezing and I was just trying to keep my hands warm. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about that is why I'm saying that is the event will always be the event. And if you want to change the outcome to it, you need to change your response. And how do we change our response? We do that by mastering our emotions. And emotions are just our physiology, our focus, and our language. And by giving people the tools to manage those three things and understand how to do it, they can then start to change those outcomes. They will feel more confident and they'll be able to deal with things better. Because I would say that how many times in a company do employee relationships break down or employee manager relationships break down? Because in my case, one person said one thing, the other took it to mean that, and the whole thing just disintegrates. So by that simple tool of mastering your emotions, you start to feel in control and you can change things and be able to deal with things better. And I can see how for, for employees, an organization could put stuff like this in place. For individuals that might be listening to this, thinking, I want to do, I want to learn how to manage my mind. I want to learn how to, you know, master emotions. Where should they go to find these things? There's, well, they could come to me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. We could, and we'll let people know about where you are later on in, no, in the show. There, there's a lot of information out there on how the mind works. Basic stuff. I mean, I think NLP is a, a great tool for doing it. But there are simple tools. I mean, even down, to be honest, to, to using your breath to, to change how you're feeling, to change your focus, to get a better night's sleep so that you are at, you're working at your best, your attention, your concentration is there. Simple breathing exercises. And YouTube is full of information that you can get hold of on that cool and I guess yeah I want to switch over to your speaking but before I do that looking back you talked about the cost to organizations yes what do you think that it's cost you looking back at your life uh far too much to be honest Sarah far too much when I Think of the things that I didn't do because I put work first. And one that really comes to mind. And uh, so when I was living in Canada, I planned a trip. My partner also, he was also working out there. And we planned this road trip along the Alaskan Highway from Canada up to Anchorage and back. And I changed my plans because of work. The work thing that I thought I needed to do because nobody else was going to do it. I changed our plans. He drove that first leg by himself. And I then flew into Anchorage after I completed what I needed to do, thought I needed to do. And we drove back. So bad enough that I missed that whole first leg of that journey. But what I really missed out on was an absolutely spectacular display of the Northern Lights, something that had been on my bucket list for years oh, no. my partner had had stood on a hill outside of Fairbanks in Alaska photographing and watching this magnificent display and he said that standing there seeing those first glimmer of lights appear in the night sky and then to be almost surrounded by the 
colors of it as they danced across the sky for the whole night almost brought tears to his eyes. Well, it certainly brought tears to mine <laughs> because that was the only time those lights appeared in that whole trip. In fact, my whole three years in Canada. And I was absolutely gutted. All because I put work first. And was there any need for it? No. But that's what I did. And that's, that's one small thing amongst it. I mean, I have put, I put work ahead of absolutely everything. And mm. now looking back... <laughs> What were you thinking, Jackie? Yeah, well, it's it, it's easy to do. And I think, you know, I've certainly been guilty of that in the past with, with my daughter getting up at four in the morning to go to work, getting back home late, missing important moments. And, you know, you, you, I think we've all done it. But I think if you're still in that loop, maybe this show will provide a wake-up call. And, you know, I guess that's what you're hoping to do not only for organizations, but for individuals mm. as well. And I wanted to talk to you about how you're planning to use speaking story, storytelling to get this message out there. And also like, you know, how do you decide what to put in the talk that you're doing to share this message? Right. So let, well, let's start with that. So what to put in the talk? We all have stories, but I wouldn't have got what I needed to know without, without your insight into that that yes, I have, have stories there, but relating them to what I wanted to say, I think was your inspiration and your insight telling me or showing me what way that I could work that in. And I think it's a, that storytelling is just such an excellent way of getting the message across that people can relate to. Yeah, I mean, you've got some lovely stories that you're, you're sharing. It's, and they're just personal stories as well. There's nothing like... You didn't have to be a sort of uh, literary genius. No. There are things in your life. It's just about yes. finding them, isn't it? Yes, and it is teasing them out because there's. it's only when you start to think about it that things pop up. So, I mean, so if you looked at last week was Women in Construction Week, and it was a story I, I told you about my boss, my first job and the boss coming in with a kettle and, oh, should I give it to her? Oh, no, I can't ask a woman to fill the kettle. And so I did a post on LinkedIn about it, and that brought up another memory of me being on <laughs> my 15 minutes of fame on the TV back in the day. Uh, well, I think I was 26 at the time. And <laughs> I worked in the civil service, the Northern Ireland Water Service as a civil engineering technician. And there was a programme out called Which Way Now? And it was about different careers for people, school leavers and that. And because I was the only, their first female doing that role, they thought, oh, that's a that's interesting. And I'd, I'd met a couple of people from the BBC. It was at a party one night. And I thought nothing of it until a week later, one of the big, big bosses came storming into, into my office. Down, I said, what were you doing? And I said, I have the BBC on. They want to interview you. And I thought, oh, oh, oh that must have been that party I was at. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> we went out, got at that time part, and I mean a small part of my job was inspecting the sewers in Belfast. So <laughs> there I was, overalls, all the high vis on the gas meter, the winch down the manhole. Well, flip me, they had me up and down, I was winching me up and down out of that <laughs> manhole for what felt like ever. Anyway, they did the, the interview, it went out on TV. Oh, cringeworthy 
went out on TV. I was a minor celebrity in the local village for a while. Oh, we saw you, yes, last night. Oh, I saw you on the TV. And then the newspaper picked it up and wanted to use some of the photographs, the stills from it. And the one thing that they picked up on, I mean, and, and every, everything else, they called it, and I did a post on it on LinkedIn, love down the drain. What the? <laughs> the newspaper and thought, what the? What? So they had a picture of me sitting in overalls, taking off a pair of shoes, which had a small heel on them with my hard hat sitting there. And the only question they had asked me in that interview about that was, you know, are you married, single? And I said, I'm single. And that was the only thing that was they asked. And then it was all, oh, Jackie is looking for love, blah, blah, blah. No, but oh, no. spending her time down the sewers at night. Now, oh, I thought, oh, oh. <laughs> I thought the TV program was a bit cringy. That was even worse. So stories, that's what brought me to that one. That, that started to bring up the, the stories of, of that and my first day at work and into a beautiful build, old building that we worked in. So, yeah. It's, and have you found that you get more response to your message when you use stories than when you don't? Oh, definitely. Definitely, because it, it it gives people... That will stick in somebody's mind and, and the message that goes that goes with it. As humans, we're all... That's how we communicate. Yeah, stories. I think it's oh. excellent. And I'm so glad I met you. Uh, well, you're, you're welcome. But <laughs> I think it's got an important message and you know, I'm looking forward to watching you share it more so that you can have the impact that you want and maybe avoid people having some of the regrets that certainly I've got and I know you've got uh, where they've put work before everything else. So um, cool. Right. I'm going to talk to you about where people can find out more about you in a little bit. But first, I have some standard questions. The first one, because this is the speaking club, what's speaking done for you? What's the best thing it's done for you? It has one. It's, it's enabled me to to bring back and to relive some of those memories and and the, as, as much as there has been sadness there there's been a lot of happy times it's, it's been able to do to bring those back up but speaking getting the message out there is is the main thing for me but two it's given me more confidence and self-esteem in in being able to do this to be able to to share the message in what I think is a much better way than what you would typically be told in presentations. I've done presentations uh, for years in the construction industry and they are so boring when you sit there. <laughs> oh, stats and slides and oh, yeah. But it was basically a case of that's what the, the way they looked at it. And if you tried to do something different, oh, no, no, can't have that. And we need to change that, definitely. If you want to engage with people, this is definitely the way to do it. And that has certainly, realising that has, has certainly helped me and I think improve the way that I deliver the message. Smashing. And have you, can you remember back to time in corporate or wherever, where have you had like the worst speaking gig where things were like, it went wrong and you're like, oh no, I never want to remember that again. I have stood... <laughs> in front of the the main the senior leadership of companies I've worked for and stood there absolutely shaking. One, usually because I was usually the only female doing a, a, a talk, presenting anything, and not even been able to get the word out because my mind just 
completely blank. I left the building altogether and oh, there was just no. this empty shell standing there. And I thought, oh, no, the shaking in the voice as you're, you're talking about it because it wasn't engaging, it was boring. And I was bored and I knew the people listening didn't want to be there and, and hear it. So, oh dear, and that was all going on in your mind. <laughs> was all, that's all, all going on in the mind. But it, it's strange when it is something that you're passionate about. And I did a speech in Canada, uh, talk in Canada, and it was all about cultural development and the programme that we had put in place. And I knew it was coming over much better, even though I was still constricted and I, I didn't have the skills that you have shown me, I was still doing a sort of half and half. Let's say I wasn't telling stories, but I was passionate about it. And that, even that bit made such a difference in that speech. And that's when I knew that I wanted to do more of that and learn the skill more. Brilliant. So, uh, okay, next question I've got for you. What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, I'm sitting here looking at all my books around me. I'm an avid reader. Um, oh, now, do I go science or do I go into woo-woo, as I would call it again? And I think, Sienna, I've, I've shared a bit of the woo-woo bit about me. To be honest, it is Ask and It Is Given by Esther and Jerry Hicks. And the, the fact that I'm even admitting that <laughs> amazes me. I came across... How did I come across Esther and, and Jerry? Again, it was on, on the course, that same lady that uh, I'd said, um, that taught me to do the, the ritual, the ceremony with the grieving. And she, she was talking about alignment. And she went on and on about alignment. And I'm sitting there going, what on earth is she talking about? What's this alignment stuff? And it, it was mainly Canadians and Americans there. And they were all, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, well, shush, Jackie, just, no, don't show your ignorance, just sit there. And, and I asked one of my, the uh, uh, person beside me, who's now actually a very good friend, and she was telling me about this Abraham and Esther Hicks. And I thought, oh, don't be so ridiculous, because <laughs> I am a cynic. I am, now, come from a science background, I am very cynical, a lot of things like that. Experience has shown me. Yeah, don't don't mock it until you've tried it, Jackie. And I thought, really? I thought, oh, okay. And I ignored it. And I was in a charity bookshop. I was taking some books down. And I thought, oh, I'll just have a look around the shelves. And that book was staring at me. And I thought, well, a pound. I can risk a pound on it. So I took it and I read it. Oh, changed, absolutely changed my outlook on things completely. Opened my mind to so much more I understood alignment I understood the mind and the body connection I just got it and that really did that was one of one another one of the first steps that brought me to where I am today doing what I'm doing yeah I've 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 read it twice it's it's, yeah. it's one that I always go back to um and it's definitely worth checking out and yes when you start reading it you think really in a spirit guide <laughs> but actually you know it's it makes a lot of sense and yeah. uh even if you look at even if you apply what is in the book you know without necessarily you know if you just give it experiment yeah. with it yes. i think that people will get uh it was it will open <laughs> their eyes and i think one of the things for me was that the fact that i could 
tie in a lot of what was saying there and rationalize it with the stuff that I had learned in NLP. And I thought, oh yeah, that, that, ah, yes, that's why that, that. So I, I could merge the science and the bit of, bit of woo-woo with it. Absolutely. Okay, next question. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Mm. I think for me, it was never ask anybody else to do something that you won't do yourself. I say that because I have had a lot of, well, not a lot. I've had a few coaches, let's say, during my time in uh, leadership coaches in my time in construction that told me that to be a leader, that you had to be you know, removed from everybody else and you had to be seen to be the leader. So no, and especially being a woman, no, don't go and make the tea or pour the tea. And I thought, well, why not? Because that's just, that's what I would do. That's who I am. And it doesn't matter whether it's male or female. You know, but simple little things like that, don't, that they were saying, no, you can't do that. And I thought, well, no, that's not me. And if that means I'm not a leader, well, I'm not a leader then, but I would never ask someone else to do something that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. And then the servant leader stuff came along and turned that yeah, all on its head. Yeah. And it, it is, yeah, yeah. And, and it is very strange that because I find, I have found that in quite a few things throughout my, my career that what I believe in and, and hold true and wanting to put into action and people going, no, no, that'll never work. You can't have that. Then a few years later, oh, lo and behold, there it is. Uh, I'm ahead of my time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need to get your message out there, yeah, your new way of looking at it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, last question then. Um, if you could choose any mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Mm, I would have to... Oh, no. Oh, here we go again. I Debating in my mind. I, I have to pick a strong female role model because there's and there's been so many and I'm very passionate about you know especially women in the construction industry but if I was choosing a, a mentor now I think I'd go with Catherine Hepburn because wow, okay she was, she was ahead of her time she was the first woman to wear trousers long before in the movies long before it was even accepted but she was very assertive she very confident uh she held on to her own truth, let's say. She did what she wanted to do, whether society liked it or not. Um, there's a few similar, a uh, couple of similarities between us that she was the second oldest of six children in her family and her elder brother died. Oh. But she was 13. And there was just a few when I, I've read her um, autobiography and there was quite a few similarities. And... She um, made some real howlers of movies and she was basically cast aside for a long time. She reinvented herself, brought herself back. And if you think of things like The African Queen on Golden Pond, no, some beautiful movies that she made. Excellent. We've never, so, had, we've never had her. So. Uh, and there's a lot of, to be honest, there's a lot of those old movie stars that I think were just excellent at... Uh, what they did in the t at the time that they did it, but Catherine Hepburn's one of my one of my favorites. So yeah, I'll go with her. Brilliant, cool. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff. Now, if people 
want to find out more about you, if organizations want to book you to share your message to help them slow down burnout or eradicate burnout in their organization, what's the best place for people to to go to? I would say at the moment, go to LinkedIn, go to my profile on LinkedIn and just DM me from there. Um, I have an email address at info at innerfluency.com. I'm having a, a couple of issues with it at the moment. So that's why I'm saying LinkedIn. I, I know all the messages get through from there. So that would be the best spot. Excellent. And we'll put your LinkedIn link on the show notes for people to find out there. Listen, Jackie, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, and all of that information about burnout. And I hope it does help some people to maybe you know, question what they're doing and, and maybe take a look at things a little bit differently. Is there anything you feel you need to say um, in order to call this show complete? Yeah, I think if there's one thing I would like people to take away from from this and it is my message around mental health that we need to shift mental health from that crisis management into providing that well-being proactive support and the caring culture that enables everyone to flourish excellent well thanks so much uh good luck with it all and uh take care thank you sarah it's been a delight thank you Did you recognise any of the same symptoms of burnout? Jackie obviously had a tragic childhood, but so many of us have made subconscious decisions after events that we're not even aware of, but program us to behave a certain way. Meanwhile, we think we're in control. And hopefully that's given you some insight into your own situation and will help you get back in control of your car if needed so that you get to the right destination, the one you want. And Jackie's so right about the complexity of the mind and the woeful lack of training we get to manage it. So do connect with her on LinkedIn and let her know if what she shared was useful to you. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's it from me this week. I will be back again next time. Um, Do check out saraharcher.co.uk to get more support with your speaking and uh, and storytelling, obviously. And if you think you need a signature talk to help you grow your audience and income and stand out and be different from the crowd, then book in for a one-to-one. And as ever, if you're a regular listener and you get value from the show, would you mind just doing me a big favour and taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating and or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Rightio, thank you so much as ever for joining me and I will be back next time to give you more speaking and marketing aha tools, tips and inspiration. But you know the score. In the meantime, don't you just sit around waiting for life to happen to you. Go out and make it happen for you. In other words, don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye.
Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humor, and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.